0: Alright you guys, welcome to Season 2 of Little Man Big Conversations. I am of course the Little Man aka James aka The Flash Man, welcoming you back finally, finally back for Season 2. It has been a hot minute since I've been downloaded or streamed or listened to in whatever format you've chosen. Thank you so much for listening, thank you so much for coming back. Season 1 was quite a success. I had a lot of fun doing Season 1. I know you guys had a lot of fun listening in and hearing the stories. But for those of you out there that are just tuning in for Season 2, haven't been here before, allow me to elaborate. Little Man, Big Conversations is a podcast all about entertainers and the world that they live and the fields that they participate in. And you get to know them behind the curtain. Who they are, what they like, their 9 to 5, and how they came up with the personas that you know and love and you, maybe you bought tickets to, bought their merchandise, Whatever it is, you've gone and seen them in whatever field, that's why you're tuning in. How'd they get that character? I don't know. Hey, listen to this podcast, you might soon find out. Which brings me to today's guest. I've grown to know, love and appreciate this man, both inside and outside the squared circle. He is an avid actor, entertainer and bodyguard to the superstars. Ladies and gentlemen, don't let me give it all away right now. Sit back, relax and enjoy the debut of Season 2, Episode 1 with... The one, the only, Wayne the Maniac Matai. Man, so far on this podcast, I've interviewed all creatures and characters from all walks of life. Some people in the wrestling business, some people in the acting business, some people in the modeling business. All of us share a similar walk of life, whether it be wrestling, whether it be performing, whether it be entertaining. Today, I have the esteemed pleasure of not only talking to a guy who has combined done all these things acting, entertaining and wrestling, but is also a protector of some of the world's best known celebrities, those important people that you like following on social media. This guy arguably has been in the background of many of those photos, unbeknownst until today. You'll find out who he is, how it all came about. He is a pro wrestler, a bodyguard, an actor. He has an in-ring wrestling career spanning 16 years. He's been a bodyguard since he was 18. You can see him on YouTube series Maniac, Protector Enforcer. There's two episodes of that out now. And he plays the legendary Sergeant Slaughter in the hit TV show Young Rock, both season one and season two. And never too late, which get this, I'm talking a full length feature film. And guess what? He actually has screen time. He's not holding up a sign in the background. This guy is in it. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my esteemed pleasure to welcome to the show today the man known as The Maniac, Mr. Wayne Matai. Wayne, how are you, man?
1: Hello, mate. Thank you for that wonderful intro. It's a pleasure <laughs> to be here.
0: Yes. Now that we've taken half an hour of people's
1: time. Now, the end of the show, thanks for having me. I appreciate <laughs> it. It's been great. Yeah.
0: Lovely to catch up, mate. Always, <laughs> always a pleasure. Always. Now that I, just as a bit, bit of an edit, did I say your last name right? Yes. Okay. I'm going to keep that in because sometimes with those names pronounced that way and spelt that way, I go Wayne... Hmm
1: yeah i used to get called mattel that would be a good one no. i would be mattel if i had the mattel fortune you know
0: <laughs> man we we're just talking about before we hit record gotta get an action figure should have been wayne mattel
1: wayne mattel action figure would have sold millions trust me
0: <laughs> the Wayne, the maniac action figure yes this has to be a thing anyone out there before we get into this you're gonna want to do it after we finish talking but anyone out there listening please get this man a toy last name as it is where is that last name originated from
1: well, it, it, it's a funny mix. It was my grandfather on my dad's side, my, well, my biological father, who was Syrian. Okay. So it, it comes from that background, but then my mother's parents were Swedish. So when you put a Swede and a Syrian together in a milkshake, what that is what you see here.
0: <laughs> Man, it sounds like the setup to a joke, right? So a Swede and, a...
1: <laughs> yeah. so and a yeah. It's my time a Swede and a yeah,
0: and out came a maniac.
1: <laughs> That's it. There's the punchline, literally. All right, man. So
0: we want to get through the the history of you. Today's episode obviously is about you being on the podcast as the name entitles, little man. Well, it ain't, uh, it's definitely me in this. <laughs> no, never more so than my guest today. Um, but follow up of that is the big conversation. So take me back through growing up as a kid because you're an intimidating guy in the best way possible. You've got a mean look, you're built, you're jacked up dude, heavily tattooed. Hey, once you get to know your heart of gold, but intimidating presence but hey i'm gonna imagine young baby maniac yeah wasn't so much the character that he is now so uh take me through it man what was growing up like for you
1: well no tattoos to start with <laughs> oh yeah of course yeah so cool. no look i uh i had a pretty good upbringing it was my mum and my stepdad uh i was brought up in a place called Glenelg in adelaide which is right down the beach so okay. i was brought up down by the beach which was great uh, I'm an only child, so I had to make friends with people to be able to do stuff on the weekends and Bits bit spare. I had a, a few really close friends that lived in the proximity, so that was really nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> having said that, primary school was great, loved it. I managed to get a job working at a big amusement place down at Glenelg. It was called the Magic Mountain. It's a big water slide place. It had arcade machines, it had rides, it had all that sort of stuff. So from about 13, I was able to work in there and had a great time. High school itself for me was not that good. You know, when I started high school, I was a short little chubby kid mm-hmm. uh, that was a big fan of wrestling. And back then that was kind of a big no-no. So yeah. I used to get pick, you know, I had big Hulk Hogan picture on the front of my school diary and it had Mr. T and all that. Cause back then 85, it was around WrestleMania one. So uh, right. kids used to pick on me for that and being short and fat and all that sort of stuff. So high school was a bit rough. Um, but when I got to about year, uh, year 10 or 11, I started to stretch out and get thin. Uh, I started doing some martial arts for a bit of discipline and a bit of self-protection as well. So by the time year 11 had finished, I was still convinced to go back and do year 12. I was a bit more confident in myself, but funny story, I went to the school to register with my mum to get our books and all that for year 12. Right. And when we went there, they couldn't find my name on the list. Huh? And uh, me and my mum were like, what's going on? And they said, well, we have no record of Wayne being here. And I said, uh, I'll show you. And my homeroom teacher for last year walked past and went, hey, Mr. So-and-so. And he goes, hey, Wayne, how you going? And I said, so is that good enough for you? And they said, well, yeah, but we don't have your records anywhere. And I said, well, what? what's the story now? And they said, well, you're going to have to go back and redo year 11 again. What? And I <laughs> just looked at my mum and I said, that's it. I'm out. And she goes, we walked off and... I left and started working full time at uh, the Magic Mountain. After that,
0: so I mean, that's I mean, in this day and age, that would be incredibly unheard of. But being mm. that it was the eighties, uh, I'm sure. <laughs> let's just say, out of context here, I'm sure there's a lot of paperwork that went missing, maybe or maybe not on purpose, back in the eighties. There, but so to this day, to to the best of your recollection, looking back on all those years now, was it ever explained or? understood as to where or how that situation even happened because and you were at that school for
1: the, pretty whole, much. the whole time for my high school career I was at that same school you know and uh it was almost like they basically said we don't have any year records so you're gonna have to go back into year 11 almost like sweeping it under the rug or making it that you know we know he's not going to go back into year 11 again so he'll just leave so not that I was a problem student or a problem child or anything it was just a case of that I think there was a faux pas in the office that maybe my file got put on the not returning to school pile, and then when I turned up, they're like, "Oh shit, we threw that out."
0: Right, mm. but but it's still that's a lot of paperwork to just sort of you know seemingly lose overnight. I mean, was the high school system was that starting in grade eight, or was it yes, grade nine? Grade eight. So, yeah, so they've got, what, 8, 9, 10, 11. They've got four years' worth of, I don't, and we're not just, you know, Wayne was here, one piece of paper. We're talking, you know, assignments, reports, yep. you know, I'm sure teachers' offices visits, um, any sort of incidents, report. you know, excursions, legal works, paperwork, everything. everything. And then four years, just, I don't know.
1: Gone. Like that.
0: Right. Okay. So, yeah, I'd, hey, anyone listening out there, I'm sure they would share the same
1: feeling of, you know what, screw this. That was pretty much the consensus when they said that, and that's why my mother didn't really try and fight me on it when I said, I'm not going back, that's it. I'm just going to go start working full-time instead of casually at this uh, amusement centre. And we were lucky that the manager there was actually personal family friends of ours, so they knew that John would look after me while I was there. So mm-hmm. that was my transition from school into the workforce, really. Were you looking
0: at, um, if you, you know, looking back on that time now, were you looking at completing... High school, were you happy? And were you motivated to go, hey, man, let's do grade 12, let's do this? Or were you already at that stage going, you know what, school might not be for me? And this sort of helped you to go, yeah, cool, this is my out, this is my
1: out. Yeah, look, I was, I was happy to do it. I wouldn't say I was ecstatic about doing year 12 because I had no direction at that time on what I wanted to do. Yeah. <clears throat> I wasn't an academic. Uh, I was reasonably good at tech studies, woodwork and stuff like that. My, my grandfather uh, used to be an upholsterer. And I was interested in maybe pursuing that. I, I didn't really know where or what I was going to do. So I didn't have something to focus on. You know, I was I was doing the casual work at the arcade, um, which I enjoyed, you know, playing video games, all that sort of stuff for me. Yeah, it was it was good fun, but it was a casual job. But it wasn't a career. I didn't want to become a video tech and fix arcade machines or anything like that. So I was kind of lost in what, what I was going to do and then... Later on, in transition, that I got a, a bit of a direction then, but at that point in time, I had no idea. So,
0: right. So you, you've you've left school. You've said you know peace. You've flipped on the bird and you've gone. I'm out of here. You joined the workforce. Being that it was you know in the in at the arcade at that point for you, um, you know, and you've just said you know feeling a bit lost, a bit of misdirection, if not any direction back then. Did you dive heavily into the workforce then? Was that sort of the be all end like all that time and energy that you put into schooling was now, all right, I'm going to really try and uh, motivate myself, work even harder at this place to the best that you could, given that it was an arcade. I mean, there's only certain things you can do to make that place bigger and better, if you will. Did you dive headfirst into the workplace or was that just some income and you were starting to look for other avenues, if it
1: yeah, look, I, I was happy there. I had a lot of friends there. You'd get a lot of kids that come in there, especially during the summer holidays. You know, that was the place to be at a Glenelg. Everyone was on the water slides and this, that, and the other. Yeah. Um, so I was content with what I was doing. I enjoyed the video game process of playing games. You know, Street Fighter and Double Dragon back then were the big things, and to me, I was playing them every day, so I had no complaints. Um, but again, I still didn't know where I was going to go. And, The funny thing came up where in the city there's a a building called the Myers Centre. It's a big, massive shopping building in the the main shopping mall. And a Canadian company came over and they opened a big entertainment place up in the top two floors of it called Dazzleland. And it had a roller coaster in the roof and this. Oh, awesome. (laughs) Crazy. Yeah. Had an arcade in there. Mm. So, of course, being you, I want to go work there. So I ended up. Getting the job working in the arcade in that amusement center in the city, so uh that was it was really just me doing the same thing over and over again, still not knowing where I was going to do what I was going to do where I was going to be i I still had no idea it was when I actually joined the gym is when I started to get a bit of direction and focus then more so than than any other time before then so
0: was that was the arcade, you know, the transition to the new arcade, and learning and and about and wanting to join up and start in the gym, was that at all motivated by your love of wrestling? Was that still a thing for you at this point, or had that dropped off out of high school? Because there's a lot of guys that will say, you know, after high school, I kind of lost track of it, did my own thing, but then it was on TV at a friend's house in the background. You go, oh yeah, I remember watching this as a kid. What are they doing now? And having that rehooked, you know, having the teeth sunk back in, and going, man, I don't know why I ever stopped watching that. Was it wrestling a motivator for you, going to the gym, or were you just like, I just want to try the gym and work out and see what happens?
1: Wrestling was always in my mindset but not my focus when I was got to that age. Um, because I was doing martial arts and so on, that was probably a big focus of mine at that time. Right. Uh, and I competed in my first full contact tournament to my mum's complete and utterance, <laughs> whereas I actually got two broken ribs out of it and put in hospital. Oh. How old were you
0: here? Were you, was, this, was this not long after leaving grade 11? Was this the same year? Or was this?
1: Oh, I would have been 15, 16, around there. All right. So just before, kind of. Yeah. 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 So I'd, uh, I'd competed in the tournament, obviously got hurt, um, had to take some time off. And I said to my mum and my dad at that point, I said, I'm never going to let anyone ever hurt me ever again. Wow. Um, okay. And I was lucky I weighed about 60, 70 kilos, ringing wet. I wasn't real big. I was tall, lanky, but skinny. So that was my drive to get in the gym. Um, always been a massive fan of Arnold, Stallone, anyone that had a massive, strong physique that could present well, even the wrestlers, you know, the ultimate warrior, Hogan, everyone at that time, Hercules, Rick Rude. Um, they were people that I would look at, look up to and inspire. So, but when I started training in the, the gym, it wasn't a, a pure focus for wrestling because I started to put a lot of sizes on it and, and get in really good shape. So at, What age was I? I think I was 19. I competed in my first bodybuilding contest in Junior Mr. South Australia, and I won. And I'm like, I don't know how I did it. I didn't know how to do the diet properly. I didn't know how to tan properly. I didn't know how to do nothing. But I managed to get in good enough shape to be able to win the contest. Um, And then I sort of got bit by the bug. So there was another contest six months later. No one in their right mind does one bodybuilding contest. Goes and competes six months again later because you just can't put your body through that torture. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, But me being me, having no clue whatsoever, decided, you know, I'm going to go ahead and compete again. Mm-hmm. So within that interim, i would managed to go to the U.S. for a holiday, part of a birthday present from my parents, in fact. Uh, and because I was into the bodybuilding scene and so on, I went on a, a specific bodybuilding tour. We went and saw um, the Ironman International in Los Angeles. We went to columbus ohio for the the world gym expo i got to meet arnold there and had a photo with him and so on we stayed in the same hotel as arnold um so that was a really big massive motivator for me so when i come back i had nine weeks to get ready for this bodybuilding contest again uh and this time i had every clue on what to do i knew everything i knew every trick under the book because i got it all from all the americans and everything i even went and dyed my hair pure white and cut it into a flat top because one of the pros Had done that to his hair because it accentuated his tan more, and he wore these very special blue pair of trunks which just looked incredible on stage. So I copied exactly what he did. Mm -hmm. Went out on stage. I think I was probably ten kilos heavier than what I competed at before, and won again. Wow! Junior Mister SA back to back two years in a row.
0: Man, that's uh, to put it to put it bluntly, that's a long way from the arcade. Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah, So.
0: So you're in the gym, and you're motivated by um, you know all the, all the action stars of the 80s and all the wrestlers and things like that. Do you remember taking that first trip because that's you know that's a long flight first and foremost. So You land, you go and do these experiences. Do you meet Arnold uh, at the at the expo? Yes. You, meet, you meet Arnold for the first time. What was that moment like because they always say don't meet your heroes, but going from having, you know, the idolization, starting the gym, going, yeah, these guys are, you know, in- incredible phys- uh, physical specimens during that peak era to now going to meet the guy. Was it at all a bit sort of weird? Did it feel like a poster had come to life? Like, we were, were, were you did you understand, like, the magnitude of what that moment was was like for you as a kid?
1: Yeah. Look, it was pretty amazing because, I mean, I was still quite a big guy at that stage, obviously, because I'd gone from one bodybuilding contest and getting ready to prep for another Yeah. So when I got to meet Arnold, he was quite impressed at my size and my shape already. And then when he found out I was an Australian, he was even more impressed with that. And he had a quick little moment to have a chat with me and everything. Uh, We had a photo together, which was great. So my my actual experience with him was amazing. It's something I'll never forget. Um, And it was something that probably gave me that push to work harder when I got back for the competition to make sure that I was going to win again. Right. So now are we, where are we timeline wise? Are we in the early nineties now? Yeah, we'd be uh, around ninety-five. I'd say I'd probably be after that contest. I was still prepping for different contests and bodybuilding and so on. But this is when I met two guys in the gym when I was training, and they said, "What do you do?" So I'm working video arcade, and they laughed. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: so you're still you're still at the arcade?
1: Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and they said somebody that looks like you and you're working in a video arcade. Okay? and i said well i don't have any trouble in there and they laughed again <laughs> and i said well what do you clowns do they said oh we're bouncers said, right what's a bouncer they said how old are you I told them my age and they said look we work in nightclubs stopping fights well oh, shit and they said have you ever been to a nightclub before and i said no we're on oh, okay and they said well we think you should go and get your security license because we can get you working with us mm. Oh, shit, all right, that, that might like I'm single, no girlfriend, no nothing. Um, so back then, the, the process to get your security license was you go into this office in the city, get a form, fill it out, tick the boxes, pay the money, submit it. They look at it, they approve it, they take a passport photo of you, you they laminate your card, there you go. Well, That's it's it. all done on the day. All done on the day. There's no training, there's no police checks, there's no first aid. <laughs> Quiet. there's no nothing it's any Tom Dick and Harry can get this license straight away so so i got mine uh, and then the next time I seen the lads at the gym I said yeah I've got it here you go so to speed the story up they took me to meet this guy did some paperwork with them and then uh, I remember my first night I was thrown into this massive nightclub in LA called heaven it's a very notorious nightclub and a lot of stuff has happened there with all different sorts of things um but i'm put in a main room where there's 1100 people i'm a a young lad standing there that's worked in a video arcade surrounded by 1100 people that are drunk off their face older than me Mm. there's music blaring that i can hardly hear myself talk there's lots of alcohol around it's hot and You know, it was a a baptism of fire for me to get into that industry that way. And then, you know, within 10 minutes of working there, there's a massive brawl on the dance floor that we all have to just pile in on and try to sort out. Oh,
0: wow.
1: So it was was pretty intense, but I would prefer it to be that way than to be eased in and trickled in to the industry the way that they somewhat do it now. Um, it, It was exciting. And, you know, my life then was all about that work. Uh, and then certainly, I'm still doing it to this day. Not so much the bouncing itself, but as we get into a lot of other different aspects of the security industry.
0: Right. So when you when the when the opportunity came to do security work, did you say to the arcade, "Hey, look, I'm done," or was it very much, "I'll keep the arcade and see how this goes"?
1: Yeah. Look, I still worked in the arcade. It was only Monday to Friday. Right. And then I'd do Friday night and Saturday night in the clubs, mm-hmm. and try to recover on sunday (laughs) with these incredible stories to these other people that were working at the amusement center going oh my god you'll never guess what i saw and you never guess what i heard you never guess what i did and they're just lapping up every minute of every bit of story that i would tell them so (laughs)
0: now being um being of that the child of that era coming up now in the early nineties. You had said yourself, you know, you were a single guy, didn't have the girlfriend, but you kind of felt a bit isolated during high school. Was that at all a big sort of shock to the system being put? Because, you know, you'd, you'd probably, maybe collectively on a, on a busy day, you could get maybe, say, 1,100 people through in and out of that arcade in a maybe busy day, busy week. Ooh. Was that a shock to your system, getting quite literally dropped into a room full of that many people, knowing that you had some of that introverted kind of? lifestyle at that point was it just like uh okay what happens now were, were you shook up were you or did you go man I've got to put my game face on I've got to try and oh do this job and there's so many people like how was that experience for you
1: it's pretty intense it was a bit of both really because back then too they never used a two-way radio when you were doing security in a nightclub well, you'd what you'd have to you'd have a pager on your belt <laughs> right, yeah because you could hear that over the sound yeah. of 1100 people. That- it would vibrate so you'd have to try and feel out for it and what would happen you'd read the pager and it would give you a code but you had to know what code that was to what bar that was pertaining to mm. you had to learn all this stuff so i had no clue on what the codes meant at all what i would do is i'd grab the pager, see it go off and then i'd look over at where the other guards were and whatever way they ran i ran with them it's the easiest way i could do it right but you know it was, it was pretty intense you know to not really have much experience in physically fighting anyone and especially street fighting because that's yeah. what it was I had I had the martial arts part but the street fighting and being aware of watching out for a barstool or pool cue or a bottle and stuff like that, I, I was as green as green could be yeah so I got clocked and hit a few times and a few things like that but you know what you learn pretty quick and if it hurts once it's not going to hurt again because you don't let it hit you again
0: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) blunt but straight to the point. I mean, pretty sound advice, especially in that environment at that time. Was this, to the best of your ability, do you remember this being sort of, I guess, the next big post-fight thing for you? I mean, it's not official contest. It's not, you know, you're not being graded, and you're definitely not getting, well, you may have done, but you definitely weren't 16 getting hit in the ribs, I should say, at that point. Would you say this would be the sort of next big, fight-esque thing that you had to do and it wasn't so much fighting as it was just defensive and you know defending yourself and handling people that have already fought with others if not yourself for whatever substance they were on was this would this be about the next big fight sort of related thing that you did since that
1: time absolutely absolutely because you you had no idea on what was going to be around the corner what was going to happen the next night you know we had fights with uh Rugby teams, football teams, right. uh, <laughs> outlaw motorcycle clubs, you wow. know, gangs, all this sort. There was, you know, back then all that element was around mm. and they, they had power back then. Not so much to this nowadays. It's, a lot of that's been disbanded, but uh, it was pretty scary back then. And, you know, you might grab somebody and throw them out but then the next day they're back with about six or seven different guys that you think, oh, shit, I'm in trouble here. So that element of shock was always there. You know, I'd had I'd had corona bottles smashed over my head. I had staples and stitches in the back of my head. I'd worked with one of the gashes open in the back of my head until my shift had finished, blood bleeding everywhere. But that was what I was like. I was like, I'm not going home. I'm not going to let that little bastard that hit me over the head with a bottle win. I'm going to finish and then I'll go. And that's what I used to do. So that sort of – I was stubborn like that anyway prior to, to getting into that work, but then that hardened me up even more was uh, the fact that I was not willing to uh, to give up or cower away. Like if there was a fight that was happening and I'd jump in, if they turned around and fronted up on me, I wouldn't cower away or run or what. I'd stand there and go, all right, let's go. Whatever happens, happens. Either I'm going to get hit and knocked down or you're going to get the same. It's It's up to you. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, look, looking back on hindsight, uh, you know, that little guy through the bottle, I, I apologize. And, uh, <laughs> here's the bar owner now comes into frame. Um,
1: here's the smashed bottle.
0: <laughs> I have the blood of the maniac. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so you, you that, it is very much, uh, you know, a ruthless environment back then being that, you know, as you said, it's not as regulated and there isn't a lot of power to the, the, those kinds of individuals anymore. Um, so it very much was a sink or swim. Was there any point, and surely there must have been a, 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 on the first kind of trial, maybe the, first, maybe the first day, but if not the first week, where you went, oh, man, I, what have I signed up for? Or was it the thrill of going in each night going, what is tonight going to be?
1: Mm, no, I think it was more the thrill. I loved my first night that I was there. Um, the adrenaline rush that you would have was just something that I craved, that I wanted, because certainly working in an arcade, there's no adrenaline at all. <laughs> yeah, no, I like yeah. To kick someone's ass with Street Fighter or something. But yeah,
0: yeah, um, the claw machine would have been the only adrenaline thing back then.
1: Yeah, when you win something, <laughs> yeah. but no, the nightclub scene for me was good because I'd never really gone out and was in that scene anyway. For me, mm. I'm now in that scene, mm. I'm now getting paid while I'm there. I'm not wasting my money on booze. I never, never really drank, so I mean that wasn't something that I was missing out on. Mm-hmm being surrounded by, you know, people that were friends of mine, girls, having the attention from people because now you're the security in the club. You're the man. You're the one that dictates who stays and who goes. Sure, yeah. It was a whole new world for me, um, but it was something that, yeah, I sort of took to like a fish to water and loved it ever since. So,
0: Were you prepared for the amount of attention? Was that, uh, did it feel like almost like a, a long-awaited compliment or were you, did it take them adjusting? to get that sort of, the, the good attention, I should say, not the club, yeah. Not the chaos.
1: Yeah, no, look, when you start to do bodybuilding and so on, you you grow this narcissistic bone, this extra bone in your body that wants that attention. So yeah. um, having done the contest and bouncing, being big at that age, you know, I'd had the the blonde flat top, you know, it was – yeah, back, back then, you know, Rocky three had come out and Drago was in there and that was my nickname. That's what they used to call me, so. Right. okay. Uh, it was a bit of a, you know, ego boost for me, which was good. Also, too, you know, back then, I think every guy that worked security in the nightclub had a flat top, had blonde hair and was tanned up anyway, so whenever anyone got hurt, they'd come back with the police. We never used to wear a badge with a number. We didn't have to back then. Right. So, so you go, okay, which one was it? And they'd go, oh, the big guy with a flat top with the blonde hair. they go, all right, and they'd come in and we're all the same. And they go, you know, they come up to you. Was it you? No, it wasn't me. You was it you? No, it wasn't me either. We have no idea what you're talking about. And then they'd walk out, and we'd all be giggling away like schoolgirls. Like, <laughs> 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 it was pretty funny back then.
0: Do you remember uh, a standout story from uh, back during back during your time? Hey, back during your time in heaven.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, look, yeah, there was a pretty big fight up at Bar One, which was the section where I used to always be. Um, and this gentleman was a high-profile football player, let's see, at the time, and he got introduced to the electrical box in the car park out the back, and then he said something smart to me, so I picked him up and I threw him in the dumpster and shut the lid. (laughs) I got in trouble for that.
0: And he's still there today.
1: Yeah. I I didn't realise that the hotel owner was one of the the sponsors of the football club, so I got, yeah, I got raked over the coals for that one
0: oh man how bad Did you, were you? were you sent home
1: i thought that i was going to lose my job yeah so but then i had another incident with the same guy only a few weeks later which actually redeemed myself he still got treated the same way by me he, he used to do this trick where he'd go and um go up to the bar and he'd order a drink and then the lady well he'd order two drinks and then uh when the bar lady would just start to punch the the price into the till, we go oh can i have one more I'm like yeah no worries so as she'd walk off to go get the other drink, he'd grab the two drinks and walk off and not pay for it. <laughs> and then you'd try and find him and then the glassy would come up and he'd be wiping the tables down and he'd lift the glasses up to wipe the tables down. And this arrogant pig would grab the rag and he'd throw it into the face of the glassy and tell him to piss off. So that wow. night I did that as I was coming up to him to talk to him about the drinks and I managed to... Uh, how do I put it? Persuade him to leave again the same way that I did before, and this time I didn't get in trouble for it.
0: No bins this time?
1: No, no, no bin, but I think the electrical box was still in the same spot, so maybe, yeah.
0: <laughs> hey man, we'll let people's imagination carry that story into the wind.
1: Yeah, that probably my first introduction to a, a real street fight hardcore match, I guess, now looking back at it in a funny way.
0: Uh, wrestling, wrestling returns and rears its ugly head once more. Was this, was it, was the club? Um, like we said, I told the podcast, you know, the intimidating presence now of, of being a bodybuilder and you're still a big dude today, but also heavily tattooed. Was the body guarding security work, I should say around that time, the initial start of tattooing or did that was, was still having that tan and that flat top and that sort of chiseled Greek physique. Was that? priority ones like with tattoos a thing for you back then
1: no look i didn't get my tattoos till i was 38
0: right okay so way down the track
1: yeah because obviously my mum never liked them she said if you ever get a tattoo i'm gonna kill you and i believed it so uh i had the utmost love and respect for my mum. she's gone now she's up in heaven but uh uh, I, i i waited i literally waited until i was 38 and the only reason why I got my first tattoo was it was my name of my first son was tattooed in my forearm. And I said to her, I said, Mum, I have to. And she kind of understood. Uh, She was expecting just his name on my forearm, but that turned into his name. And then a whole bunch of flames right up my elbow and then a skull. And (laughs) so it kind of manifested after that. And then it just went from there. So I had pretty much all of my tattoos were done within eight months. And that includes my chest, my back, both my sleeves um, and my calf as well. And it was it was
0: a tattoo bug, as they call it. You know, as soon as you got your first one, just had to keep it going?
1: Oh, it, it's legit. It is. It's the, mm. the sound of the gun, the the scratching. It's like a, a cat scratching you with a claw. Yeah. That's the feeling of it, but it's, you know, over and over and over again. So once you start, you, you just literally can't stop. It becomes an obsession. So.
0: Man, when I got my first tattoo across uh, my shoulders, it was this Latin font. And, uh, yeah, similar experience, but obviously I don't have the size and the frame. Of the maniac. So uh, let's just say a little bit more of an intense process for yours truly. But when I was getting the outline done, because obviously you've got to get the outlines of the word and you've got to color it in. And um, getting the outline done, man, I'll share it with you now. I have never stared so intently at a section of floor tiles in my <laughs> life. I, I I, sweat on the best of days. Hey, us wrestlers, man, there'll be times we would be sitting in a chair. Why is your back sweating? Oh, just please continue. Um, it was just... It was just one of those things, and they had the aircon blasting on me, trying to cool me down. Um, not a lot of canvas to work with anyway, but hey, they're doing the best that they could. And it was a Latin um, phrase, and it was from um, most famously, it was used in the Tom Jane 2003 Punisher movie um, that stars John Travolta. Oh. And when um, I got it done, it, it's it's Latin for it says, Sivus parabellum, which means if you want peace, prepare for war. I got that because um, my parents shared a similar uh, ideology, which was no tattoos, just don't do it. And I thought, okay. So at nineteen, I got a tattoo, and <laughs> and uh, I'm like, no, maybe it was. Sorry, twenty-two. It was twenty-two, and I got I got it done, and I'll never forget. You always see those horror stories of tattoos, and especially font, and especially with you know strange words yep. um, of getting it typoed and and. done wrong so yeah i I stare intently at the tiles the guy does the outline it felt like a hot nail just consistently you know buzzing and being pressed but hey man there's something about getting your first one get it done i remember standing up and thinking well yeah that's great thanks a lot man because i was like anything to get me out of that chair come on man we've been here for hours and he went no no we have to color it in now damn it yeah and there was a comma in between the two sentences and that comma sits right on my spine <laughs> and man, when I'm getting that when I was getting that comma done, when that outline was going, man, and he's like, Oh, you need to stop shaking. And I'm like, I'm not. It was quite literally vibrating my entire skeleton. But hey, I get I get the tattoo, and I get home I'm in the mirror. And I have I'll never forget this. I had one of those moments where I was like, you know, with like say if you knock a tooth out and you think, Oh, you know, oh, that really hurt my mouth, and you put your finger in your mouth to check and it's not there, and you have that sort of, wait. Wait, wait, you know, that checking, that sort of fear, like, no, 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 it, it must be me, it must be me. And it was like that. I'm looking in the mirror, I'm looking across my shoulder, yeah, I got my tattoo. Wait a minute. What? Why does that word say param instead of packam? <laughs> oh, no. And I went, I went, no, no. I'm like, oh, it must just be me, it must just be me. And I never felt so more uncomfortable in my own skin than I did having that moment. I get to training, because um, this was, I think, what I was about three, four years in at this point and I'm at training and you know I had put it up on MySpace and social media and stuff like that.
1: MySpace, wow. Yeah,
0: back in the day, man. MySpace. And uh, yeah, so I put it up there. My trainer, uh, go down to training and he says, uh, show us your, your tattoo. And I showed him and he says, uh, you know, I used to study Latin in high school when I went, oh, great. So you know straight straight up what this meant. And he goes, yeah, he goes, but that's the sentence you want and what you have on your back is not the same thing. Yeah. And I went, mm. Okay, I said why and he goes well you want if you want peace prepare for war right and I said yeah it's to do with my medical background like I had extensive medical background as a kid I felt that was my war and now I'm healthy and clean I'm at peace and he said yeah he said if you if you want peace prepare for war so pacum parabellum and he said right now you have parum parabellum which right now translates to if you want parent prepare for war <laughs> Oh, no. And I went, "What?" And he's like, "Yeah. So, I guess you're going to be a dad." And I'm like, "No, it's not what I want. That's not what." <laughs> anyway, we managed to. It was one of those sort of Latin R's that you can, you know, sort of add the bottom loop of the R to make it kind of look like a hybrid C. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I had one of those horror moments, but it is an addictive feeling. And I got, a, I got my second one, uh, I think, many moons later. But, yeah, man, there is no other sensation in the world like getting your first tattoo and then getting it done to the extent you had. Pop quiz, which was the most painful one for
1: you? When I had the word maniac tattooed across my chest, and because my pectoral muscles are reasonably sizable, let's say, yep. when you get to my sternum, there's nothing there but the sternum and right. two points in the artwork where this design joins is smack bang in the middle of my sternum. And when, when he was getting it done, he started off and he did one half, <clears throat> excuse me, one half. And uh, it was killing me as it was then. And then uh, I thought, okay, we're going over to the second half now, that's all right. He's gonna finish with that and that'll be fine. All of a sudden he goes back to the first half that he's done and it's like cutting through raw meat and I'm oh. like, what are you doing? He goes, Oh, I just need to touch up a few things. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm about ready to get done for homicide. Cause I'm going to kill this guy who's doing my tattoo. Yeah. And he finishes and goes back over. But then every now and then he'd see something and he'd go back again to the, the first side. I'm like, I'm going to fucking kill you if you go. <laughs> it was just, pardon my language. Um, but yeah, that was pretty painful that way. And I mean, that's sizable too. It's not a small little funnel. It's like takes up half of my chest. On both yeah. sides
0: so yeah so that tattoo was about roughly the size yeah the size of me and, <laughs> <laughs> and was that the last tattoo that you got
1: no jesus it, it continued from there i mean then i had another son so his name came on the boy's birth dates came on then i had to design up my arm um then from there my back was done i put my wrestling logo smack in the middle of my back with a whole lot of stuff stemming out and look trust me probably the biggest body part of my body is my lap muscles on my back. I used to get called the barn door, basically. So to fill that back took a lot of work. And then uh, then I decided to get something on the back of my calf. And then later on, I had my chest capped as well, completely and my hand done. And, you know, so it's just, it's ongoing.
0: Right. So what was, what was the last one? Like your most
1: recent one? Well, uh, on my hand, I had the word king on my left hand with a crown. Right. Is there a matching word on the right hand? Uh, not at the moment. No, no. I want to I want to get something similar. To, I was I was listening to Batista the other day, and he has on his wrist. He has on one wrist it says "Passive by nature," and on the other one it says "Violent by choice." Now I think that's exceptional, but I don't want to copy what he's got. I'd like to get something similar. So,
0: yeah, passive yeah. by choice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Hey, man! Even the light security. It's your choice of whether you want to be nice to them or not, right? Exactly. All right. So let's, let's cut to the meat of the, of, of the extensiveness known as the maniac here because we bring it up with the tattoo and we've talked about it roughly being influenced by it as a kid, having that sort of in the background and being one of the forefront figures when you start your uh, bodybuilding journey of the wrestlers back then in the, in the 80s. During the club days – are you, still, are you starting to look at wrestling as something that you could do now that the frame and now that your physique was improving and, and and chiseling, if you were, over time? Were you looking at wrestling as a possibility, or did that was it like a similar thing with the security guards coming up saying, hey, man, what are you doing? Oh, I work security. You should come and wrestle.
1: Yeah, look, I didn't know that wrestling existed here in Australia, to be honest, back then. I right. was still watching it on TV, uh, you know, I was seeing Stone Cold and The Rock and everyone and all that sort of stuff, especially in the um, – the Attitude Era was amazing. I, I loved it, but it still didn't click in my head that perhaps I could get in there and I could do that. It just didn't for some reason. I don't know why. And then we fast forward a little bit. I ended up doing security for a local wrestling show in Adelaide. They approached my company and asked if we could do the security for it. Mm-hmm. And I got to talk to the, the promoter, the guy that was running that, he was a wrestler as well, and he found out that I was a fan of wrestling. So he said, oh, this might be a good mix your company and us to be together and do business it's great no no problem um i was like three times bigger than this guy who was the wrestler promoter anyway so (laughs) uh, back then i shaved my head but i had short hair and i I bleached it blonde pretty much like tito ortiz Mm -hmm. because i was a ufc fan as well so long story short, we, we go to do security at one of their shows and I figured I'm going to take the best spot and stand right near the runway so that I can see down there, I can see the ring, I can see the action uh, and not really have to do much work. That's the way that I looked at it. Yep. So I'm standing there and the crowd starts to spill in and all that sort of stuff. And next minute these kids come up to me and they start looking at me and one kid pulls out a flip phone, Because this is how far back we were,
0: mm-hmm.
1: takes the phone out and takes a photo of me. I said, what are you doing? You're one of the wrestlers, aren't you? I said, can you see what it says on my shirt? Security, no, I'm not. ah, yeah, you are. I said, I'm not, I said, trust me. And the kids are like, whatever. And then, you know, the crowd's coming in again and so on and they keep looking over. Because, mind you, I'm about 6'3", 6'4", 6'6", in my wrestling boots, weighing 130 plus kilos. Clean skin still, no tattoos, but with this bleached blonde short hair. So I guess I had the, the you know, in the wrestling game, what I called the look. Mm-hmm. That's what was attracting the people to me then and there. So the show went on, everything was fine. At the end of the show, I'd gather my guys together, i go up to the promoter and say, how was that? Are you happy with everything? He said, yeah, no, no trouble, no issue. Everything was great. And I said, great, excellent. He goes, there was one thing though I need to mention. And I said, okay, what was that? I said, "Was there an issue?" And he goes, "Well, yeah, sort of." And I said, "Right, okay." So, what was it? Tell me, I'll fix it. And if it was one of my guys, he won't be back next time. He goes, "It was you." Oh. I said, "Okay." I was kind of taken back because I take my security work seriously. Of course, yeah. And I'm like, "Okay, what? Uh, what was the problem?" And he goes, "Well, to be honest, he goes, no one was looking at the ring the whole night." <laughs> I said, "Right." He said, "They're all looking at you." Yeah. I said, "Well." I didn't do anything. I just stood there and made sure everything was all good. He said, yeah, but everyone's focus was on you. He said, no one gave a shit about my wrestlers in the ring, nothing at all. Mm. I said, oh, okay. I said, well, I said, look, that's a shame because I really enjoyed watching the show and so on. I said, but look, I can fix that. I said, I just won't come anymore. I'll get my other guys to do it and that'll solve the problem. I said, maybe I'll buy a ticket and come and watch the show because I did really like it. Yep. He goes, you, you are a wrestling fan. And I said, yeah, of course I am. He goes, well, look. He goes, I have an idea. He said, and I said, okay, what's that? He said, how about we train you up? I said, are you serious? He goes, yeah. He said, you've got the look, which is one of the hardest things to get. We can teach anyone to wrestle. I could, you know, you can wrestle with a mop, mm-hmm. but to have the look <clears throat> that you can't make that happen. You just either have it or you don't. So I said, yeah, all right, cool, let's do it. And then I, I went to training. I started to learn the break falls, and I'm picking them up real quick. I'm doing the front flip into a break fall. I'm doing them perfectly. Because i would watched so much wrestling too, I kind of understood the way the moves were done, not that I'd ever done them before. So I did my first body slam. and They've gone, where did you learn to do that? I said, I've seen it on TV. They said, but yeah, but how did you know where to put your hand and tuck the head? And how did you, I said, I just take notice of what they do on the TV and just watch. Yeah. Like, wow. Okay. So my training was fast tracked. I, I picked it up really quick, which was good. Um, and the way they brought me in was very clever. We had a guy called Mark Aston who was a channel 10 sports reporter, right. uh, on the news every night everyone would see Mark Aston. Mark Aston was a wrestling fan. He got involved with this wrestling company and <clears throat> this night he was in the ring right at the end of the show to, to congratulate someone or interview someone. I'm not sure what it was, but then all of a sudden, <clears throat> The heels come running down to the ring and started to kick shit out of the wrestlers and they started to beat up mark as well right and everyone again looking around and so on but they're not kind of looking at me anymore because they've realized i've done several shows where i've done nothing at all i've just stood there right so then funny enough i've ripped my shirt off jumped the rail and just ran straight to the ring <laughs> jumped into the ring and just clean house wiped everyone out the place went berserk of course yeah actual footage on YouTube that somebody filmed with their phone and it is absolute chaos. People are just losing their minds. Um, And that was my introduction into wrestling. And then I still didn't have a wrestling name or a gimmick or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Somebody said to me the next day, they said, how was it? What happened? And I said, look, I just, I ran into the ring like a maniac and wiped everyone out. And I've gone. That's it. There it is. There's the name straight away. And it just progressed from there.
0: So you had touched on it just before, because as much as I want to get into now the the career of of running down to the ring like a maniac, you had touched on it just briefly. And I want to make sure that this gets out there too, because this is also such an important part of your life, not only back then, but to this day. Um, You had mentioned that you had your own company at that point. What was the company uh, that you had started and where did that idea come from? Was that something that you had thought of during the bouncing days in the club?
1: What had happened was I was working for a company, and it was called Sundown Protection Services, and it was a friend of mine that owned it. And I was more than happy doing what I was doing, but there were a few things there that kind of I thought, you know, weren't right or I wasn't happy with. So I thought to myself, I thought, I reckon I can open my own security company and give it a shot. So registered a name got a logo got everything that i needed to get prepared to uh, to open a security company and then my friend who owned sundown got got whiffed of it and basically said what are you doing and i said oh I'm, I'm thinking of possibly doing it myself i'd like to give it a shot i reckon i can do it and he goes i reckon you can do it too i said okay he said but starting off with a new name and no contracts no nothing he says it's going to be extremely hard he said what if i sell you half of Sundown?" And you can take those clients and put them into your company. Mm. Really? Would you do that? And he goes, yeah, if you want. He said, oh, I'm pretty much at the time where I've had enough. So, yeah, I'm happy to do it. Then it's to basically buying his entire company from him.
0: Wow. Okay. What that, Do you remember how long that time frame was where you were offered a, a part of it and then, hey, I'll just take the whole thing?
1: Weeks. Really? Weeks.
0: Was it that because you were just so gung-ho and it sort of felt like you had finally connected the dots and this is something that you were really passionate about and he said hey look you're way more into this than i am you just take it or was there some sort
1: of deal in place no i think he could see how passionate i was about it and the ideas that i had and i wanted to do and i think it was it was the right time for him to get out too. he had issues where he had to kind of step away or whatever Um, so it kind of was the right time for him and the right place for me so we did the deal i kept the name of the company it had a, a decent reputation but not the best so then i came in and changed everything brought customer service into the the deal because i had done a stint at Westwood marion in the shopping center there doing security for them for about seven years um and they're very customer service orientated and so on so when i took that and brought that into the let's call it the bouncing scenario it was unheard of you know touching base with your clients every week making sure they're okay having a 24-hour mobile number that they could ring somebody if the guard never showed up. They had a port of call immediately to raise a concern, whereas before they never had it. Mm. If never showed up one night, well, then they were like, oh, well, we'll have to wait till tomorrow, give the office a call tomorrow and find out what happened. They've got immediate contact with me and I can resolve it straight away and get another guard there if the guard didn't show up. So... I brought all these different things into the industry that no one was doing and that's what made my company explode and you know become one of the biggest privately owned firms in South Australia. And it's still running to this day? Uh, well, no, I have a different company now. That, that company we, uh, we closed down due to uh, other issues, what divorce. Um, right. So then I have a new company now called Shadow Security Group, uh, which is very much exceeding the same direction as what Sundown was. Uh, but obviously we have more to do with the personal protection side of things now as well.
0: Right. So when that first sort of conversation came through during the bouncing days and the the topic was brought up, um, do you remember sort of doing that first initial role, like getting that first official job and said, hey, man, you know, this is day one, this is what we do, this is what we'd like you to try and do. Was that a huge change given from the arcade to the clubs to now protecting people, was there a huge difference or was it very easy to adjust and sort of chop and change to apply to this new field?
1: It was kind of a new thing to me. Like I didn't have any business acumen. I'd never studied it at school or anything like that, but I knew the industry and I knew what was lacking. So bringing these ideas forward and implementing them, I think was like a fresh breath of fresh air in the industry that people are going, holy shit, mm. you know? Where's this guy come from? Because we've never heard of him doing this, this, and this. Um, and the personal protection side of things—that was something that would grow on its own. Really, that's that's another another story within itself. Where it was me meeting a certain person that made that increase quite a lot. In fact, so from the 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 company side of it, it was just a fresh set of eyes and a fresh mind with bigger and better ideas because this guy was on autopilot, you know, he had all the clubs, he had the, this and that, and he was making money and he didn't really care, you know, and he was at that point where he wanted to get out. Whereas I wanted to stamp my authority in the industry itself and be someone. Um, So that's what I did. Basically, I pushed it as hard as I could.
0: Right. Now, was that the first time that you had done any sort of security based protection kind of work or what did you have any experiences earlier on?
1: No, I had a couple of experiences earlier on, especially when I was at uh, Heaven. We'd have celebrities come in, DJs, all that sort of stuff that need to be right. done.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, and they would put them with me. Right. I don't know why they would put them with me. Maybe I was one of the bigger guys there. You know, and I'm clean cut, no no facial hair or nothing, no tattoos. So, you know, it was a, to use a better term, a good looking kid back. Then. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, look, I looked after like Sophie Monk, um, quite a few. So the D Carl Cox, Lisa Lash. You know, there was all these sorts of people that were coming through. Um, and then I got my first job where I was looking after Elle McPherson when she was doing her lingerie launch in Myers.
0: Man, mm. that's uh, that's quite a start. Mm. Uh, I'm sure that I'm sure that we were very happy to be <laughs> to be a part of that.
1: Yeah, look, let's say I certainly wasn't contemplating turning the job down, that's for sure.
0: (laughs) Let's just say uh, maybe in the grand scheme of things that could have quite questionably been the hardest job for you to do at that point. Must stay focused, must stay focused.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Surrounded by lingerie and stuff and then there's L there and you're just like...
0: (laughs) I am a professional, I am a professional.
1: (laughs) And I was only very young too, so you can just imagine it, okay? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Hey, man, good-looking kid, Lingerie L McPherson concoction for all good and wonderful and maybe sometimes some bad things to happen but hey you get through it you get the praise and the job continues so you have the company now you're developing a bit of a streak that's where the opportunity to guard a wrestling show comes about um as a, as an avid fan would you say although you know meeting and mixing with these celebrities obviously you've got to keep your cool you can't sort of stop and ask for an autograph or maybe you can i don't know can you no yeah exactly all right so hey just want to ask that question Sure, a lot of yeah. people out there are thinking the same thing. Maybe behind closed doors, oh, here's your, here's a unit, sir, and uh, oh, just handkerchief. So no, okay. So you, you got to be professional. Got to be on the ball at all times. When that caller come in to do that wrestling show, were you like, you know, as you were explaining before, you know, you stood up by the by ringside. You're watching the crowd. Crowd, you're t- one of the guys. Much like the L. McPherson, was it hard to sort of almost? keep keep that focus, keep that attention, because you had been such a fan of it, were you sort of watching the action and going, oh, I've got to watch the crowd. Oh, but action, I've got to watch the crowd. Were you just as much as a fan as you were a professional at the, on that day?
1: Definitely still a fan, but also professional. I mean, I was strategic. I placed myself in a spot where <laughs> my back was against the stage and I had to face the ring, mm-hmm. and then I could watch the entire crowd as well. But in my eye shot, the ring is there as well, so I'm not having to turn away from where I'm working to look at the ring, I was very smart in my positioning or where I put myself. With that fact, I wanted to make sure. Um, so yeah, I was I wasn't silly. Let's say
0: <laughs> he's covering it from all angles on day one. Right. So you have so you have your training. Do you remember how long it was for you at that stage? Because you're picking it up quick. You know, you've been exposed to the business. You're 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 in peak physical condition. You've already had the the rough and tumbles of the life. You know prior. During and after those clubbing and mixed martial arts days, now you get into the wrestling world. First question I got for you about the wrestling thing: Do you remember your first bump, and did it sort of take the wind out of your sails
1: that first initial fall? I remember my first bump absolutely—a break fall in the middle of the ring. The only thing that it, no, it didn't take the sail out, the wind out of my sails, but my hands hurt. Yeah, because I hit
0: that mat. Yeah.
1: I mean, because my size and how big I was, my back was big, my traps were big, my shoulders were big. Mm-hmm. Basically, it was just a normal hit to the ground, but it was the the first time doing it was having the guts to be able to make yourself do it. Because right. you don't know how much flex is in the ring. You don't know how soft or how hard it is. You know, naturally to do a break fall on a concrete floor is completely unnatural. Right. You wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So but in the ring, everyone's going, do it, do it, do it. So, it was a case of just basically, you know, going, fuck it and doing it to then realizing that, hey, that's not that bad. And of course, also too having the sense of mind of tucking your chin when you do it, which I did from the get go, because obviously, as you know, you let your head hit the mat. Well, then, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you, you, you'll be flashing back to putting people in a bin. That's for sure. Waking up in a world of hurt. Yeah. So you have that first initial bump. You, you have your training. Are you hooked immediately? Like, are you like, man, this is everything I thought it would be and more?
1: Yeah, pretty much, because I was picking it up pretty quick. You know, I was even one of these guys that could swing a punch that would look real, know how to do the stomp properly that makes it sound a massive hit, mm-hmm. miss somebody by millimeters. Yeah. Don't, don't ask me how I knew how to do it. It just happened. I wasn't trained to do it. They were big haymakers, big roundhouses. So they looked amazing. That's not how I fought when I was bouncing or doing martial arts or anything, but I knew that it was it was the pageantry of the show and everything had to look big from the way you looked or the way you threw a kick or the way you threw a punch or even a headbutt from bringing your head all the way back and then bringing it forward for the headbutt. You know, in normal fashion terms, if you're going to headbutt someone, it's a very short, brief snap of your neck straight onto their nose.
0: Mm.
1: But you make everything bigger and elongated. So it's really weird. It kind of was... Natural for me. I, I I don't really know why or how to explain it. It just it happened. It was weird.
0: Yeah. No. I uh, I completely resonate and I understand completely what you mean. Sometimes it's just that that drive or that spark or that click or that moment where it's never one you can pinpoint. But as soon as you get it, you get it. And when you get it, you never lose it. And some guys, it takes a while. You know. They, and everyone's different. You know. Ever, so I'm sure there's plenty of guys you've either worked with or seen train or even were training at the same time where it was man, hopefully this one day, this guy's going to get it. And then when they do, man, that has got zero to 100, just like yeah. that. Um, yep. for, for a guy like yourself, yeah, there there are things, there. I, like I said, I completely agree. There are moments where you go, I don't know how I'm doing this. I don't know why this is happening, but I get it. And did you have uh, that sense of when you were training and things like that, a lot of times when the guys train, you know, everyone comes from different walks of life. Everyone has different backgrounds and much like yourself going into that wrestling world. Everyone sort of comes together. It feels sort of like a, almost like a circus, like a big top family. You got, you got your comedians, you got your strong man, you got your women, you got your acrobats, you got your clowns, everything in between. Um, were you nervous to perform or train in with other people? Or given that you had the, the bodyguarding and security work, both in the clubs and in your own business, you were sort of accustomed to doing these sort of strange yet weirdly wonderful actions in front of other people watching.
1: Yeah, no, look, it it was intimidating the first time I had to train and especially bump and do stuff in the ring with these other guys. I mean, look, it is somewhat like a big family and a big circus and so on, but for me it was a little different. There was resentment from some of the guys there for the fact that the promoter had brought me in. I'm, you know, three times bigger than anyone else. I actually looked like a proper wrestler back then, per se. Obviously, the industry's changed now, but to have this giant guy, as in myself, come in who's picking up things straight away, some of the guys didn't like it because they felt that, you know, the attention was going to be taken away from them and be thrown onto me. Right. Which, in reality, it happened. That's that's what happened, you know, because. I used to get walking down the street, people would turn and look twice at me when I'd walk past, whether it's they thought I looked like a wrestler or they just, people didn't realize or understand that somebody could be this big or look that way. You know, I was never shy about the way I presented myself when I went out. I never covered up. I'd always wear, yeah, if I, you know, I had a tight shirt on, I'd wear the tight shirt. I was proud of what I'd achieved and made. Um, but that always happened. Every time I had a girlfriend or I was out with mum or anything like that, that always made the comedy. Did you just see that guy? i like, no, why? I said, they just stared at you all the way past when they walked past you and then they kept staring as we walked past. Mm. My mum used to think it was the funniest thing ever. She would laugh her <laughs> ass off basically because she'd see all these people staring and she'd be like, yeah, that's my son. Ah, uh, awesome. So, yeah, so there was a bit of resentment in the, well, let's call it the locker room and the training area and so on just because, you know, oh, well, who's this guy, you know? You know, he doesn't know anything and then I start picking it up and they're like, yeah. So, yeah, there was a bit of, bit of segregation there, and it was a little bit uncomfortable, but, you know what, you just got on with the job.
0: Right. And speaking of getting on with the job, you're, you're doing the progress now. You're running a business. Um, safe to say, just to fill in the blank here, the arcade's long gone.
1: Yeah, look, funny <laughs> enough, you should say the arcade's long and gone. The arcade might have been long and gone, but the arcade came to my house. I bought multiple pinball machines and arcade machines and put them inside my gym, which was in my home, which was massive. It would be like an Anytime Fitness. I managed to have one in my house. Let's say that the security company was quite successful, so that's where I was able to do a lot of these things, which was good. But yeah, I brought the arcade to me instead of me being in the arcade anymore.
0: The, the same one or the similar?
1: Yeah, oh, look, I had the four-player Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle arcade. Yeah. <laughs> <and I> had- <laughs> WWEF Royal Rumble pinball machine. I had Baywatch pinball machine. I had a standing arcade machine, which had, you know, 400 old school video games in it. I had uh, an original stand-up Mortal Kombat machine. Plus the big Harley Davidson ride on simulator game. I had that as well. So yeah, I wasn't shy about (laughs) making my arcade ridiculous.
0: Was it more like of a nostalgic thing to set as like a, to put in your gym, to sort of look back on while you're training and go, yeah, that that I remember starting out doing that. Or were you an avid gamer because you had been so spent so long in the arcade? Were you a gaming kind of guy, or was it more for sentimental? Like, oh man, look look back at how far you've come at that point.
1: Probably a bit of both. I mean, I was never, you know, you'd have PlayStation come out then, you'd have Wii and whatever else. I had them, but I wouldn't sit there for hours playing games. You know, not like my youngest son is madly on Fortnite with his Xbox. (laughs) As well as my oldest who's 17, they both play together and so on. But for me, that wasn't it. Me, to play a game was to stand there and smack a pinball with the buttons or to stand there and play Mortal Kombat and jump up and down and get the shits when, you know, (laughs) Sub-Zero head off. Um, So it was a bit of both. And, I mean, even to this day now we have an arcade in our home and Hunter, who's my youngest, will come down and play Street Fighter with me or he plays the pinball machine or, or whatnot. So we have a another arcade in our house. It's just something I think that'll stay with me forever. So did you do you still
0: have the pinball machines or did were they uh...
1: I've upgraded, funny enough, to something now that's called a virtual pinball machine. Right. It is actually the same cabinet, the same setup and everything as a normal pinball machine, but this pinball machine has four thousand pinballs in it. And what happens is the play field, instead of it being all mechanical and all that, has one big massive LCD, LCD, LED screen. Right. You can go through and select whatever pinball game that you like. The back would change, the screen would change, and it's exactly like playing that machine. It'll never break down. It's amazing.
0: And it's still got the, the, the button flippers and all.
1: Everything. Everything is exactly the same except for it's not a mechanical playing field. It's a screen.
0: Right. So when the screens are off, it's just two flippers, two bumpers. No,
1: no flippers, no flippers or nothing. It's just a black screen. Wow. are all in the screen controlled by the game itself. Okay.
0: Now I'm getting, yeah, okay. Because I'm, I'm thinking, you know, that's like, it's like a backlight thing. But no, this whole thing, wow. Where'd you yeah. find that? Where That doesn't come up in normal conversation every day. Hey, have you seen this <laughs> virtual pinball machine?
1: Well, we went and bought uh, this big arcade machine that's got like 5,000 old school games in it from this... Uh, eight ball place. Right. And uh, we got that and then I saw the pinball machine in the back. I said, what's that? And he's brought me over and said, like, oh, it's a virtual pinball machine, yada, yada, yada. We just spent four grand on this arcade machine and he's trying to sell me this too and I'm like, oh, not... <laughs> not at the moment. So we left and then we were talking about it and then all of a sudden one day I've just gone, you know what, that pinball machine would be awesome and we ended up just going and buying it, so... It's, uh, it just completes the arcade with the bar and all that stuff in there. I'm now trying to, <laughs> I'm now trying to get uh, – there's a, a car racing virtual simulator machine which has got X amount of games and I want to get that now.
0: <laughs> it's – so, uh, all right, so re- rewinding time now. Um, you've, had your, you've had your first session. You're starting to enjoy it. Can you remember roughly uh, how long it was from your first session to your first show, like your first actual match? But, uh, that run-in notwithstanding – but your uh, you're first proper, all right, you're on the bill. Here we go.
1: Only, it was only a couple of months, I think. And it, okay. was, a, it was a squash. Um, it was an open challenge. This guy goes to the ring with his manager, uh, Benny English. And uh, love you, Benny. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he's out there saying anyone in the locker room can have a go, blah, blah, blah. And I remember my music was spitted out by Slipknot. That was my first entrance music. <laughs> which is my- a yeah. Angriest music I could find Yeah, and uh, I had no wrestling gear on, I had some tack pants which I used for security, security boots. The only thing I went and bought was a black leather vest, like a biker vest. Mm-hmm. I bought some black gloves, that's all I had, that's, that's what I was. And then this music hits, no one knows what's going on, no one knows who it is and then I come through the curtain, I just stand there and I point straight at the ring and the place just went nuts because they kind of remembered me from the running and so on, they're like, holy shit, now he's actually in the show.
0: Mm.
1: And it was just a real quick squash. I think the bloke ran at me, shoulder tackled him and he just dropped, picked him up. I think I threw him to the ropes, he took the big boot and then he took a choke slam, and then that was it. But that was a lead into something bigger because the, the owner promoter came down to the ring who was the main heel. Um, and he gets <clears throat> in my face and challenges me to a match. And like, I haven't spoken to the ring, I haven't done anything before. So he gets right in my face and he calls me a pussy or something or other. I just grab him and I choke slam him in the ring as well. <laughs> I pick up the mic, I walk over, I stand literally right over the top of him. I bend down and go challenge accepted and drop the mic on his nuts and he walked out. And yeah. that was it. That was the lead into my first real big match. So,
0: Right. And what year was this? Was this still 2004? You start wrestling training in 2004
1: at this stage? Yeah. It was, it was back around there somewhere, yeah, definitely. I mean, I was still only, I think I was about 26, 27, something like that, mid to early 20s, not younger 20s, um, because I was kind of thinking to myself, too, what are you doing? You know, you're 20 whatever I was. You know, you'd think you'd have to start early, but, you know, it is what it is. But it was good fun, so I was happy that I started then then earlier on because I'd gone most of would have picked it up or I would have been interested in it back then.
0: Yeah, so were you... You were avidly watching the product as as well while you were training? Tuning in? Absolutely, yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, look, I I hadn't been fully trained properly, and one of the first biggest moves I did in the ring was a double suplex. (laughs) A double on two decent-sized men. Yeah. And I had no idea really what I was doing, but I'd researched it. I watched a few matches. I'd seen Andre do it, and I think, shit, all right, okay, that's how it is. And we went out to the ring. They said, do you want to practice it? I went, No. All right, so the, the the day came, I went to the ring, I've got in there, they've kicked me to try and hook me up like they were going to suplex me, and then I reversed it and hit them with it. Worked perfect.
0: Yeah. You kept that in the arsenal?
1: Yeah, I did that. I have done that a few times, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Man, uh, I guess we should touch on it because the reason I bring that up was the first time I saw you compete, Um we were talking just before we hit the record button, but I was th- I'm thinking it was at a convention. And I had met, who would become one of the figureheads in your stable, which we'll get to later on. Um, I had met Coyote pretty much, I think, a year into my career. And he is by far a BFG. He's a big, friendly giant. Thanks to the world of everyone. Has nothing bad ever. I mean, it'd it'd make him cry before he'd say anything bad about someone. And I remember um, always being in contact with him and... Supernova for me back then. I was, you know, I was involved in wrestling, but I was heavy into the costuming and cosplaying and dressing up and things like that. Yeah, man. I uh, managed to message Josh. He said, "Yeah, I'm down the wrestling. Come on in." And uh, I think you and him were teamed up. Yeah, you were. And yeah, you hit that move. So I know firsthand just how much that move uh, looks awesome and feels twice as devastating, man. So yeah, I'm glad you kept it, man, because it works. It works perfect. So all right, you you start off there now. For those playing the home game and for those that may not be aware, The Maniac wasn't something that just stayed in South Australia at this stage. You do have an opportunity very, very close to this time frame of being able to travel around and perform, which a lot of the guys these days, I want to say in in current times, global pandemic being what it is, but even before that, um, it's not – as universally recognized or maybe not as easy to, to a certain extent, travel around and have the opportunities that a guy like you have had. Mm. So back then, you know, Australian wrestling was still sort of much, you know, much like you finding out and doing security for it. It was very, not cult-like, but it was new in the sense of like, you know, there was flyers and, and maybe some paper, you know, printouts in the newspaper, things like that. Radio was a big thing. Um, Social media definitely wasn't around much at that stage. I think the internet was still brand new-ish, you know, do you Yahoo, all that kind of stuff was still coming out. Yeah. Um, do you remember how how long it was between having that first initial match, having that first feud, that that big storyline, that big push um, for you at that stage, being that you're a built guy, you know, they're going to do what they best that they can and they want to use you to the best of your ability. Do you remember having that first initial conversation of, hey, do you want to come work another a different state somewhere else? And did you feel like, being the confident man that you are, because I know that you're you're motivated, you're headstrong, you want to go and do things, you want to do it to the best of your ability, always been a professional, but having that first phone call being like, hey, uh, hi, we're from insert town here, you fill in the blank. Do you remember that phone call and roughly how long it was at this stage for you?
1: Yeah, look, i had been wrestling for the company in Adelaide for a little bit. And the story with that was, is I actually had a falling out with the promoter and the people running the show. And they were the only people that i had wrestled for in Adelaide. And I didn't really know that there were other shows around. Um, and I thought, right, okay, well, you know, maybe my wrestling is over because I've had this falling out and can't wrestle anywhere else. And I don't know how it come about, but Mark Williamson, I got in touch with him or he got in touch with me. I, I can't remember who did what. It was one of us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He was running wrestling shows in Sydney. He had, a, I think at that time, he was running a show called Nightmare. Right. And I said to him, I said, look, this is who I this is what I've done, yada, yada, yada. I can't wrestle in South Australia anymore, but I want to keep going. Would you be interested? And okay. he said, absolutely. Yep. So I started to travel to Sydney on a regular basis wrestle over there for Nightmare. Uh, Greg from TNT saw me and I mm-hmm. spoke to Greg, so I started to get work with Greg as well. Um, and it kind of steamrolled from there. That the word started to get out about, you know, this new guy that was in this is, look at him, he's huge. You know, he's not the most technical wrestler, but shit, doesn't matter. He's drawing a crowd, people want to come and see him. So that's how it kind of spread that way was the, the fact that I couldn't wrestle in SA anymore due to certain reasons. And I wanted to continue and Mark was the one that said, yeah, come with me. And he became my manager for quite some time.
0: So obviously that's a subject of, you know, falling out, having creative differences, things like that. Um, Was it a creative thing or were you just feeling a bit burnt out? Or were you feeling like maybe, again, you know, if you want to protect the story, that's all and good. But just for a tip of the iceberg, was it a creative thing? Did you feel like a bit? Because I, like I said before, you're a guy that likes to have a goal and likes to go and work towards it. Were you, was it a creative or were you feeling a bit stagnant?
1: It was a bit of a creative and a bit of a personal issue. And, I mean, look, it's so long ago now and I've actually made peace with this guy. I'm not going to throw him under the bus sure. anytime, because I, I still have a lot of respect for him um, and thank him for him being the one that brought me in. But uh, back then there was a, – a, deep rooted personal issue and maybe a little bit of creative as well but i mean what did i know about creative back then i didn't know nothing. <laughs> i was that new i had no idea so yeah it you know it was just something that happened back then that you know it was like two heads playing yeah, and i wasn't going to give up nor was he so that's where it was so i basically went fine and I thought, well, Australia's a big place. Surely there's got to be more around here somewhere. And then when I started to get out there, that's when it, it, it went from there. You know, I ended up wrestling in Queensland, Western Australia, Sydney, Melbourne, plus Adelaide again, never Northern Territory or, or Canberra, but not not really fussed about that. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, we bring up an interesting topic here, Matt, because um creative is something that I guess a lot of wrestlers always butt heads with. And it says always the four famous words in wrestling is I have an idea. Yep. And uh, that's, always a, that's always a Pandora's box or a looming can of worms. And um, so the, the Maniac character, you had gone from the, the blonde flat top and having the, the, the physique of emulating that of the guys from the 80s. When did it shift and change to the persona that we all know now? And I'm sure people out there Googling the Maniac would, would come up and see this image now. Um, obviously it's a big, was it a change over time or did you see something and thought, Hey, I want to try and recreate this?
1: Um, look, obviously that first night when I ran to the ring, I had somewhat of a, a goatee. It wasn't a full goatee. I didn't have any hair on my top lip, but I had it on my chin and I had some hair. It wasn't real long or anything, but that's what it was. Um, and it was my idea to try and create a character that would fit the name Maniac. I and mean, when you think of Emmanuel, what do you think of? You think of someone that's, you know, crazy, that's going to kill you, that's going to bash you, that's evil, that's that's whatever. So it was just something that I was thinking about in my own head and I thought, right, I'm going to shave my head. So I shaved my head completely. I toned my goatee to grow a little bit longer and go sort of into a point. And as I was doing this, as I was looking at you, it turned out to be somewhat of a rather demonic look just by accident. And I thought, how can I make this better? I need to work on this. So then I injected fake contact lenses in and had my white contacts, which made me look even more demonic. And then I thought, um, you know, I've got to take it to that one next level because I need to look like this animal. So what I did is I dyed my goatee black and then I put a blonde streak straight down the middle. And then that's where the actual image of the maniac come from there. It was just the thought process of, you know, how can I make myself look even more meaner?
0: Yeah.
1: So, instead of having a pretty boy look with the hair and all that, with the goatee <laughs> and the shaved head. And, you know, later on in later years, it manifested into, you know, changing the character somewhat with the tattoos
0: mm-hmm.
1: because there was at one stage where they wanted to turn me heel and I'd been a face ever since I started, yep. you know. I'd bash the ref, I'd pull out a chair, I'd hit someone with a chair, I'd do all this sort of stuff, but the crowd would love it just for the fact that there's this big animal monster going there going berserk. Yeah. I could not get over as a heel. It just wasn't working. And then, you know, I took a little bit of time off because I think I'd hurt myself. And this is when I was having my son and you know the tattoos started from there. And when I came back, I'd had, you know, somewhat of these tattoos back. And I tried the heel thing and it started to work. Right. Okay. All it was taking was a bit of an image change than anything else. Yeah. yeah.
0: And it is one of those things, you know, I, I always say to guys that are still active today, um, have chats with guys like yourself, guys from down the line, guys that it's coming up. But wrestling is one of those things now that it's, it, it, it's, it was a part of, you know, in the attitude era, but now it's merged with pop culture. And because they share a lot of the same elements, you know, entertainers and entertainment in some way, shape or form all have similar shared elements. I feel like, um, and I say to all the guys, you always have to continually reinvent yourself. And it doesn't mean, okay, I'm going to delete my name and start again. No, no, no. it's, It's like the Madonna. It's like the Elton John. It's like the Lady Gaga. Every time... You know, they bring out a new album or it's been a few years, they take a break, they come back. They're always keeping it fresh and keeping it active and keeping it new. Yep. I mean, Madonna, I mean, she's been going for, you know, since late 70s, early 80s. And she's still as you know, you say her name, everyone knows who it is. Yep. And the image just chops and changes with the time. And wrestling is a similar thing. You'll see guys like Back With The Rockers, where Shawn Michaels came out with his blonde hair. Hey, similar to The Maniac back then, you know, had the blonde hair. Nowadays, you look at Shawn, he went through all those changes at the brunette, the sexy boy, the barbershop, uh, all of that, DX, all the way to the Hall of Fame. Now, lots of chops and changes in between. So wrestling isn't a stagnant entry. It always needs to consistently swap, merge, change, evolve over time. And so, yeah, that definitely that initial maniac look that you're talking about, man, like you, you say it here because it's true and it's it is what happened. But I struggle because I've seen what you are and the image of the maniac that I know. Hearing that initial first first time, you go, "Nah, <laughs> that's that's not <laughs> that didn't happen, man. Like it's always been this. You know, you find that look that works, and people just, it, like I say, like me reacting to it now, it just sounds foreign. It's like, really, did you? Nah, yeah. you, you've had this look forever, but it's it's not a, in a bad way. It's just like a, this is this is the look that works.
1: Yeah, well, you know, people always used to say, you know, I'd kind of look like Satan in the face with without the horns, and uh, I tried to figure out a way of how I could bring that into my character. So that's when I came up with the moniker of Hell's Vigilante. Yeah. You know, a Vigilante is somebody that takes matters into their own hands and does what needs to be done. <clears throat> so I figured calling myself Hell's Vigilante, that makes me Satan's dirty man to do all his dirty work for him. So then I started to come out and my gear would have 666 on it. I'd have the big cross on the back and so on, and that's. The moniker came through as Hell's vigilante, the maniac Wayne Madie. Then the name just grew again, and the character got more and more, you know. Uh, and ironically enough, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that point. I actually played Satan in a film, so that kind of solidified my character then, because people have gone, "You even were Satan in a film?" <laughs> yeah, man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's not a work. It's it's a shoot. <laughs> that's, that's really- So you've had your first, taking it back now, you've had your first go interstate with Sydney. Um, Was it a vastly different experience to that that you were used to in South Australia at that point? Did you feel, or was there a lot of similarities? Because as you probably would have experienced, the years that you're doing and all the traveling you've done, there would be some real friendly locker rooms. Then there'd be those ones where you went, man, I I just want to do my job and I want to go home. So was Sydney welcoming? Did it feel familiar or was it still like a, foreign man in a foreign place kind of vibe.
1: They they were reasonably welcoming. I mean, obviously being an interstater, they probably didn't have too many interstaters coming at that stage. Mm. Um, But then they're doing their shows in an RSL, and I remember walking through the curtain and going to the ring and looking around, and there were six people in the crowd. Mm -hmm. Mm. Whereas I come from the company in Adelaide, where we were, after I debuted, drawing 400 people. So I'm like shit, um, which was a big gear change for me because I still had to go out there and do what I had to, but in front of you know six or eight or ten people, mm-hmm. it, was, it was an eye opener. Um, so that's where the difference was. Whereas, depending on where you travelled to, where you go, it was where the crowds were. You know, Melbourne being a massive wrestling town would always draw amazingly. Yeah, they in turn drew really well. Uh, Queensland. Not bad. Sydney used to pick it up a bit, especially later on. Um, but then I went to Western Australia and I got brought into a company there and became the figurehead of their company for them. And we used to draw amazingly there as well. They did massive shows. So it was it was different when you go to each state, you know, crowd size, depending on how they would promote the show, what sort of storyline they had, where you were on the card. I mean, look, I ended up that I mean, not trying to big know myself. I normally ended up in the main event in most states. Mm-hmm. Because putting that big figure there on the poster is what drew people to come. Right. The the, the bigger than life superhero, so to speak, mm-hmm. regardless of me being Satan's henchman or whatever, like that. It was still a character. People wanted to see that character. You know, I, I never broke character at all. You know, mm-hmm. when I was taking photos with people, I'd never smile. I just widen my eyes more so the contacts look bigger and wider. You know, so I kept that image going almost my entire time so that people would still believe in that character. So,
0: Yeah. Kayfabe isn't dead, but the main yeah. it. The- so your first initial like run before you had the break, as, as you mentioned earlier, do you remember how long that was? Was that about six years, 2010? Did you take, did you stop then?
1: Yeah, somewhere around there. I did it pretty hard. I, I'd be traveling every, every weekend. I'd be away somewhere. I mean, that, takes a toll on things. It took a toll on my marriage. Um, but it was what I wanted to do, you know. I remember when I first started, I had a girlfriend back then, and she thought it was the most ridiculous idea ever. She thought, you're stupid. Why are you doing it? I don't think you should do it. And uh, subsequently, we broke up. Not because of that, but we just broke
0: <laughs> up. You shouldn't do it. Get out. Yeah,
1: get out. <laughs> I cannot talk to you anymore. <laughs> I'm
0: putting my contacts in. Leave me alone.
1: That's all right. So... So yeah, it was a big toll. And then obviously um, I had my second son and I wanted, to be around, I wanted to be around more for him. So that's where the uh, foot on the brake came through from there at that point in time.
0: Right, so wrestling's picking up for you in about the six years of, of the first initial run here. Um, just briefly, did you have the sort of origins of the shaved head and the, the contacts before the stop or did that come on the on the return?
1: No, that was before the stop, before the stop, absolutely. So,
0: So you had settled on the look, the tattoos were beginning at that stage or they were there?
1: They were somewhat beginning. I mean, I just had my second son, but then just started to put my boys' names on my arms and that was the idea behind it. And that was the way I sold it to my mum. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, she bought it. <laughs> yeah, she, she accepted that part, but didn't realise that the name on my forearm went to a whole lot of flames going up my forearms and skulls and God knows what else. And I just, ah, it just kind of happened, Ma. Sorry.
0: <laughs> he went rogue with the needle. There was nothing I could do. Um, so yeah, so you, you, you have the, the blueprints, um, sort of a steady foundation now of the maniac look, you take some time away. Wrestling's playing a big part here in the six years, Mm. but you're also, but Hey, like we said just before, you're also in charge of a protection company. Mm. Yep. Did that at any stage have to take a backseat to the wrestling? Did wrestling become more important? professionally for you at that stage were you thinking hey I'm getting obviously you're doing appearances doing conventions getting paid at the end of the day Yeah. was that did, did security work almost take a backseat or were you still like okay I can't do this show because I've got to protect A, B and C was it on evil playing field or was wrestling sort of starting to overtake a little bit here
1: it was reasonably even I had a pretty good management structure at that time so I had operations managers on-road supervisors all that sort of stuff Um, that I could rely on to take care of that whilst I was off being a, let's call superstar, because that's what they used to say, you go be a superstar and we'll look after the business. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, look, when when a projection job came up, that was paramount for me. So I would take that and take a step away, whether it was two, three weeks or whatever from wrestling. And they knew that that was my main job and my main focus, because I would get paid a thousand times more doing that than I would wrestling for that night. So they. And that was fine. But, you know, I, I attempted at that time somehow to approach the WWE, which I did, and I right. uh, got in contact with a guy called Ty Bailey back then. He was involved with HR, with uh, Johnny. Um, and I'd sent through some of my staff. I sent through photos and all that. And Ty really dug the character. He thought it was great. And because back then they had no one from Australia that had Outback Jack in the 80s and mm. it was just... Goofy character, and then you had bloody the uh, the Bushwhackers. Yeah. Again, not selling Australia as the most intellectual <laughs> either. Either of them. Yeah. So then he's got this big zombie-looking biker that's called the Maniac. That you know, yeah. Look, I was doing a lot of the Undertaker moves because the big man moves. You know, I wasn't technical, so I'm not going to go from a wrist lock to a head lock to a waist lock. You know, I'm going to grab you and I'm going to punch you in the face. That's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that time frame, that's, I think, what they were liking and what they were looking for. So he'd come to, it was around Christmas time and I'd given Ty everything. And Ty was very keen. And Ty said, yep, we'll draw something up for you and we're going to get it to you to sign and we'll bring you over and we'll see how we go. It's fantastic. I was over the moon. Of course. He said, look, we're taking a break through to Christmas holidays and so on. So in the new year, get back in touch with us and we'll, we'll get it started. It's great. Now i are really excited now. Of course. This is done and dusted. And then uh, I got a contact again and one, I tried to contact Ty and his number and his number's dead. Mm. Oh, okay. Um, all right. So I actually ring WWE head office in Connecticut. So Hi, I need to talk to Ty Bailey, please. They said, we're sorry, Ty doesn't work here anymore. God, fuck. Um, I said, okay, who's who's in charge of HR and all that at the moment? And they said, uh, oh, there's a guy called Canyon. He said, we can put you through to him. Said, great, no worries. Got put through to Canyon, told him who I was, asked if he knew who I was and so on. He said, yes, I know who you are. I've seen your stuff. He said, how old are you now? I think I might have been 27, 28, maybe around there. Yeah. He goes, yeah, look, that's where the problem lies. I said, okay, why? Well, what's that? He said, you're too old. Wow. I said, yeah, the same thing. It's wow, really? He said, yeah. He said, look, I look for guys in their 20s, 18 to 20. He said, I want people to have longevity on screen. And he said, at your age, I don't feel that you will have that longevity. So he goes, I'm unfortunately sorry. The contract that you had with Ty is gone. Wow. And I was devastated. I couldn't, you know, <clears throat> to be told that the thing that, Stopped you from getting in was your age, which is something that I cannot do anything about. Yeah. If they said to me, you wrestled like shit, or you look as crap, or you know, you're not big enough, or what, well, mm. I could change those things and I can work on those things. But when you tell me my age is what has stopped me, then you know, you gutted, you can't do anything about it. Of course, yeah. And you know, I, I went back several times and approached and pleaded with Canyon, and so on I got to a point where Canyon said, look, Get yourself over to here, get to Florida, we'll give you somewhere to stay. We'll have a look at you, maybe there's a character we might be able to use you on screen for, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, and then I thought about it and I thought, you know what, that's an open-ended invitation. There's no promise there of nothing. I could even get there and I wouldn't even have a hotel room. So I figured, no, nah, I'm gonna give up on that idea for them and just think that's, it is what it is, I'm done with that. Keep wrestling here in Australia because then, you know, I still had a big name here. I had a big following, you know, everything was going well here. I figured I'll just do what I do here and that's it. Mm. <clears throat> and that's, that's the way I continued, you know. And then obviously later on I got tied in with WWE to do all their personal protection work, which I've done with them now for 20 years. So wow. a lot of guys that are on the roster are my personal friends that I can talk to I have their phone. I'm a shameless ryback. You know, all these different guys I've got. To know them on a personal level because when i was working and still work with wwe i never pushed my wrestling career on them I actually right. didn't i didn't tell them i didn't tell any of the boys that i was a wrestler or nothing and i think that is what solidified my relationship with them because they would then find out somehow
0: all right you guys that's gonna do it here for part one interview with the maniac i hope it's been interesting so far hey thanks so much for listening to the podcast if you want to follow the podcast, keep up to date with all the episodes and all the special features we got going on, please follow LMBC Podcast at Facebook and Instagram, and on Twitter, LMBC underscore podcast. Thanks so much for listening in, and I'll see you next week.